It's my um, opportunity this morning to share with you from the book of Ephesians. We've been on a journey since the start of the year, looking quite extensively uh, through this letter. Before we do, I'd just like to pray for us as we open up God's word this morning. Uh, This morning I'm actually going to be reading from a different version, uh, and most of you probably won't have it unless you have an electronic version. I'm reading from the NASB. I've got some copies here and will also appear on the screen. If you'd like um, a copy, just wave your hands and Shabu will will, uh, throw that to you as we um, go into this morning. So let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And through Christ alone, uh, we enjoy salvation. Father, we thank you that through Christ alone, we have eternal life. We thank you for this letter which we will read from this morning. We thank you for the the deep truths that will be discovered. Father, we pray that the distractions of what goes on around about in our worlds will be dispelled this morning for this brief 30 minutes as we look at the, the mysteries within your word. Father, we pray that by your spirit you will convict us. By your spirit, you will refine us. And Father, by your spirit, you will shape us to be dynamic followers of Christ. The world is in desperate need of this message, Father, and we just pray that as your servants, you'll impart us with a a tenacity to make known the love and grace of our precious Lord Jesus. We pray this in the powerful name of Christ our Saviour. Amen. I don't know about you, but uh, I love a great mystery. Whether it's in a film or in a book, whether it's fictional or non-fictional, I really enjoy trying to work out, okay, what's the end game? Who is the murderer? And I, I reckon this occurred to me as a, as a young child. Who here has played the, the magnificent board game Cluedo? Oh, that, that's really surprising. There's nothing quite like Cluedo, is there? And uh, the aim of that game was to determine three things. One, who the murderer was. Two, in which room did the murder take place? And three... What weapon was used? You know, my personal favourite is clearly Colonel Mustard in the library with the candlestick. Now, that's, that's a mystery, and, and as you play that game, you, you unearth all sorts of different clues, and you try and determine who the murderer is. In a similar way, um, Scripture is full of mysteries. But thankfully, the mysteries are revealed. See, in our scripture, that's the the nature of our Bible. That God progressively reveals his plan as we read through the Old and New Testament. As God chooses to display from generation to generation certain truths. 
And the text we're going to be studying this morning is one of those primary texts that reveals a great mystery. If you're into the primary language, mystery is the word mysterion. And this is what we we dive into today. We dive into the the mysterion of the gospel, the mysterion of Christ, the mystery of why Paul was chosen and appointed to proclaim this message. And this mystery is, is relevant and it's important for us to understand today. It's important for us to understand and grasp the, the depth of the mystery. So let's read together the text. And I'm reading from the NASB, and uh, I've got it up here on the screen, and you have a copy, if you so wish, or slide it to NASB. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as is now being revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. In order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. We're at a juncture in this letter where where Paul has just explained for two chapters salvation from God's perspective. We look at the truths that have been uncovered that redemption was predestined, redemption was applied, redemption was accomplished and redemption is going to be consummated. As all moments of the way God views this this miracle of salvation. We learn in chapter 2 that Everything in our own humanity separates us from God's great grace and mercy. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God being rich in mercy, because of his great love, saved us. It's by grace you were saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand 
for us to do. That's salvation from God's perspective. And the miracle of of this salvation from God's perspective also rolls through to the fact that now, as we've read last week, we are one new humanity in Christ. Those who were far off have now been brought near. We are one body through the cross. We have been reconciled. Sin is no longer the issue because Christ has atoned for it. He has reconciled it on our behalf. We're no longer strangers. We're no longer aliens, but we are fellow citizens and saints if we have accepted the fact of God's grace and faith on our behalf. You see, in the last part of the verses in chapter 2, you have the view of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in operation. God is clearly the subject in the passage like he has been for the first two chapters. Everything is from God's perspective. And God is the one who is creating this new person into a holy temple. He's doing that through Christ who's reconciling us. And Christ is the, the cornerstone of the new temple. He is the chief cornerstone. With the apostles and prophets being the foundation stones. It's a living and dynamic structure. Look around. This is an example of the living dynamic structure of of God's grace and action. It's only living and dynamic because of God's gracious power that overflows and flows throughout this organism. The Holy Spirit is the manner by which God dwells in this new structure. The Holy Spirit resides in each one of us individually, but also in a marvellous way resides in us and unifies us corporately. This is what unity is, folks. This is what unity is. Under the subject lordship of Christ. Being unified together by the Spirit of God who is creating in us fruit of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, patience, self-control. All these things are needed in this body. And as we go down this text, we'll explain why. Because Paul says, okay, there is a purpose in this, and the purpose is dot, dot, dot. We will see what the purpose is. Think for just a moment about the the church at Ephesus. You think about what made up these believers. What made them up? There was Jews on one side, there were Gentiles on the other. Paul went and preached to the synagogue in Ephesus when he first arrived. Some Jews came to faith. Many more Gentiles came to faith. 
as he, as he taught for, I think it's four or five hours a day, up in the school of Tyrannius, in the upper quarter of the city. He taught. He taught the marvelous grace of God and what that meant. And Gentiles started flocking to Christ. And it cost them. They burnt their books. They burnt their idols. They had a book barbecue. Burnt 50,000 books. You might say, that's not much. You think about how a book was produced in the days of Ephesus. You didn't rock up to Collins' bookshop and buy one. It had to be handwritten, folks. No printing press. 50,000 of things that were burnt. Why? Because people's lives were changed. They saw the reality of the gospel in their lives and said, we don't want anything to do with our former idolatry. Nothing. We want to be set apart for the gospel. You see, think about their environment and who were they? These Ephesians subject to, they were, they were clearly under Roman rule. They were citizens under the empire. They lived and worked in this city whose primary source of income related to the worship of idolatry and prostitution. You think about the Jews before their conversion. They thought of God as dwelling in the temple made with hands. And on the other hand, in this, in this environment of Ephesus, the Ephesians and the Gentiles thought of the goddess Artemis as the one who dwelt in the renowned temple just down the road. These are two diagrammatically opposed views of, of who God was and where he resided. But you know what? The liberating power of the gospel changed their view. changed their view and after their conversion both Jews and Gentiles must view God and his dwelling place is drastically different from their tradition they are now one person made one new person and God's abode is now within them through the Holy Spirit and the entity called the church And this is the reason that Paul starts in verse 1, for this reason, the very first phrase. This is the reason I've just explained to you the, the new union, the new man, the new humanity. He starts to pray. But like any good preacher, what does Paul do? He digresses. For the next 13 verses, he digresses. He doesn't even pray. He gets back to verse 14 and he says, Therefore I ask, he gets to verse 14 and he says, oh, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. So he takes a bit of a, I don't know, a bit of license, if you like. Not as really license because this is inspired by the Spirit of God. But he's, he's excited about what he's talking about and he, he wants to just add a little bit more. He wants to start explaining a little bit more about himself and his call. And he wants to explain about the mystery of Christ. He wants to delve a little bit more deeply into the fact that now you are united, you are now one. How does that work? 
In common terms, how does a good Kiwi bloke get united with a good Aussie bloke? Extremely difficult, Keith. Just as well the grace of God is there, isn't it? And see, he wants to explain this. He firstly starts by stating where he is and what he's up to. He says, I'm a prisoner. And not only just a a physical prisoner, and we know that this book was written from a, a dungeon. He said, I'm a prisoner not just physically, but I'm a prisoner for the sake of Christ Jesus. What has put me into prison is the fact that I've been proclaiming the gospel to Ephesus, to Colossae, to Corinth, to Thessalonica. He says, I'm a prisoner for the sake of you Gentiles. After all, I'm the apostle that's been given by God to you to spread this gospel. We, uh, we read that a little bit in, in 1 Timothy. And then he, he, he starts telling us a little bit about his calling. And this is not his road to Damascus experience. This is not the calling of, okay, this is how I become saved. You can read that through the, the book of Acts. Acts 9 is a good place to start if you want to read about how Paul came to, to faith. This is the purpose he came to faith. And that's what he, he starts to talk about in this digression. In verse 2, If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you. It's a really interesting term, stewardship. Some versions say administration. If I were to say to you, what's an administrator? Do you know what an administrator is? Administrator normally would be associated with perhaps an accountant. Somebody who looks over the books and ensures there are processes and policies and procedures in place for the wise use of funds and to account for that practice. That would be one definition of an administrator. Another definition of an administrator may be somebody who looks over a large organisation and, and places policies and procedures in place to ensure outcomes are being met. I personally like what the NASB says here. It says stewardship. Paul identifies himself as a steward of God's grace. And he's describing here the office that he has as an apostle to the Gentiles, but he's, he's actually a steward of God's grace. That's his calling. And the stewardship of God's grace, note, how did he receive the stewardship? It was given to him. The stewardship, this calling, wasn't something he dreamed up. It was something that was passed on to him by God himself, as we will read a little bit further down in the passage. So I'm in prison for the sake of Christ, for my proclaiming of the gospel, the claiming of the gospel that has been given to me. It's a stewardship. I'm in, this is my office. This is what I do. 
And then he explains how it is given. Verse 3 is given by the revelation that was made known to me, the mystery as I wrote before in brief. So what does it mean to reveal something? You know, one of the best pictures of revealing something we have is probably at Christmas time, right? We have gifts wrapped up underneath the tree. And if you're unlike me, you, you, you wouldn't have gone and felt what those gifts might have been. But normally the giver knows what's inside the gift, right? You have no idea what is in the gift. And then on the morning you, you tear the paper open and the gift is revealed. Something that was previously hidden has now been revealed. Some of us probably won't take the gift back. Others say, oh, that's nice, thank you. But it was previously disclosed. In verse 9 of this section, we, we have this reinforced. The mystery for which ages has been hidden in God. So he talks about the mystery which he's, he's starting to divide slowly. What is this mystery? We haven't got to the, the, the Colonel Mustard in the dining room with the candlestick yet. He's, he's starting to get there. But he's saying, this thing has been revealed to me. It's been revealed to me. It's been given to me. Given by God and revealed by God. Both of these words are a passive in nature. It means that God is passing on the knowledge. See, revelation in a biblical sense is unveiling something which is known by God from eternity past and has now been known, made known to human beings. And that's the sense here. Something that has been made known is always known by God. Why? Because God is all-knowing. Sometimes I think we, we lose sight of the fact that God knows all things. Past, present, and future. It's what we call God is infinite in his knowledge. And as human beings, we struggle with that, right? Because we, are, we have limits on our knowledge. We have limits on the, the things we know and understand and, and, and grasp and grapple with. But, but God is all-knowing. And we get a glimpse of the all-knowingness of God as we've read through these first three chapters. Salvation from God's perspective. He is all-knowing. And Paul is stating this revelation that, that was given to me is, has been known by God previously, and now he has unwrapped it, he has, he has displayed it to me. It's not clear from this text when this revelation took place. If you look through the text, we don't, we don't know when the revelation took place. It could have been on the road to Damascus. It could have been the three years he spent between Arabia and Damascus uh, that we see in Galatians 1, where... He seems to be under the tutorship of Christ for those three years. But I think it's a little bit more than that. I think this 
mystery of this revelation has happened at different stages through Paul's life. We get a glimpse of that in Acts. The book of Acts. What's the first significant event in the book of Acts? The day of Pentecost. Why is that significant? The Spirit of God is poured into man for the first time. The age of grace begins because the Spirit now dwells within us, not upon us. The church is formed. One of the next major significant events in Acts is Acts 15. That's some 16 years after Pentecost. What's been discussed in Acts 15? Acts 15 is the discussion by the elders, by the apostles of the Jerusalem church. And they were discussing the inclusion of Gentiles in the church. So hence I think it's possible that this mystery for Paul was slowly being revealed. It took 16 years from Pentecost to to the Jerusalem Council for the truth to be understood in its fullness. And he also starts giving an indication of of what this mystery is by the phrase in the end of verse 3 as I wrote before you in brief. So somewhere else in this letter he has already started displaying what this mystery is and I think it's clearly in chapter 2 where Jews and Gentiles are created into one new person and are in one new body. And this clearly is also taught in verse 6 of this text. You say, well, so what's the big deal? I think we're a little bit removed from the cultural issues here. You've got to understand that Jews and Gentiles pretty much hated one another. And not with a mild hatred. Okay? This is almost elitism. The Jews on one side thought Yahweh is our God. We are his chosen people. No one else will have rights to him. Even in some of the later Jewish writings in the, in the, the second temple period, you know, that's around 500 BC, you have this indication. They understood, yeah, they were to be a blessing to the nations, but the nations were never to be part of them. So you've got to understand that, that this friction was there. You've got to understand that, that when this is being revealed, that you have the Jewish nation subject to a Roman authority. And they had been subject to empires since 586. They had been displaced from their land, the chosen land. And there was this mutual hatred that went on. Look, I don't know how to describe that. I, I, I don't see that in our current culture between nations. Not here in Australia. I don't see it. But this is why this is significant for Paul. He's saying, Jews and Gentiles are now one in Christ. Your basis of your new identity is the person and work of Christ. 
And that's a mystery. And there's something that can only be explained by the fact that the Spirit of God works within individuals. We move further through the text. Verse 4, he's really saying, hey, I'm referring to this, this mystery as I wrote before. The mystery is Christ in you. This revelation has given me insight into this mystery. And this mystery hasn't been revealed before. Verse 5 is clear on this. Other generations did not know about it. Prior to Pentecost, it was not known This mystery that Jew and Gentile are now new one people of God. And he explains that in verse 6, and I think it's beautiful the way it's explained. There are are three key things which he talks about. To be specific, the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You see, what uh, Paul is doing here, he is, he is moving. See, in, in chapter 1, go back to chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. We'll start at verse 7, actually. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intentions which he purposed in him. See, Paul's previous description of the mystery was far broader than this current description. The description given in chapter 1 is more broadly conceived. It's about the summation of all things under Christ, whether in heaven or on earth. It's a broader view of what the mystery is. But here he really gets quite specific. He says that one part of this grand plan, there is this one particular thing you Ephesians need to know about. And you Cantabrians need to know about. Is that there's this unification of two formerly separate ethnic groups into one body through the gospel. It's only the gospel that can unify us. And this is shown in these three descriptions he uses. Fellow heirs. It's got a theme of inheritance in there. See, in the Old Testament, you've got myriads of of, uh, verses talking about the promised inheritance for the Jewish nation, whether it's land, whether it's seed, which I mean many, many people, or whether it was personal blessing so Paul says this inheritance now is is, as one new people of God is that there is equality between Jew and Gentile and this is the mystery that God has revealed one people of God 
It doesn't matter about your ethnicity. It doesn't matter about your so-called rights or the previous promises given. To be in Christ is to be an heir of the promises. The second one he uses is fellow members. And this is a really interesting word because it's the only time we see it anywhere in ancient Greek. So by all accounts, uh, Paul made this word up. And it's, it, it's okay because actually two parts of the word are pretty well known. Um, and it really just means they are one body together. So your fellow heirs, you're one body together. And thirdly, you are fellow partakers, you are sharers together, and that's not sharing of sheep, that is common sharing of everything. You are sharers together in the promises. And that's a wonderful mystery that's been revealed. In verse 7, he just really says, it's a bookend from verse 2. Verse 2, he says, You've heard of the stewards of God's grace, which was given to me for you. Verse 7, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. Please note consistently that Paul's focus is on who has given him the power. Whenever you embark upon Christian ministry, whether it's a full-time, whether it's a volunteer, whether it's sharing the gospel with your neighbours, it's not about you. The power for that comes from God. See, in this portion, in this sentence, it's one sentence from 2 through to 7, is, you see, God's divine grace reveals Christ. His divine grace reveals Christ. And empowers us as his servants for ministry. Therefore, as servants and ministers of Christ, our efforts must be based on God's empowering and enabling through his spirit by his grace. This is what we call the indicative of the gospel. It's dwelling on everything God has done for us. It dwells on everything God is doing and has done for us. And the command of the gospel was to go based on the motivation of what God has done for us and to walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. And pretty much the back end of Ephesians, the last three chapters are all about that. The word peripeleko, which is translated walk or live, is mentioned six times in the next three chapters. And that's all about a response to the gospel in your life. So as you serve Christ, whether it's in your home, whether it's in your school, in whatever place God has placed you. Realize that 
the power to serve him is based on his spirit that dwells within you. His spirit is what enables you to serve him in grace. It is a grace gift of God. The spirit is a grace gift, the most marvelous gift of grace. Paul testifies to the fact that that was his sole light, his sole focus for God's service was the fact that God had given it to him, had made it known to him, and empowered him to serve. Folks, if you've put your faith and trust in Christ, you have the same Spirit of God within you. If you haven't put your faith and trust in Christ, what's stopping you? Because there's nothing outside Christ. There is no internal inheritance outside Christ. There is no peace outside Christ. There is no love outside Christ. There is no peace that passes all understanding that is outside Christ. I implore you today, think about Christ and what he has done. He has redeemed you through the way of the cross. And it's a gift of his grace. By grace you are saved. I don't know all of you. I know most of you. But if you do not know the liberating power of the gospel of Christ, I implore you to be reconciled to God. Repent of your sin and fall on his grace. For those of us who know Christ, this is incredible encouragement. This mystery that has been revealed to Paul is the same mystery that is revealed to us. We are reconciled. We who were far off have now been brought near. And there is a responsibility in that. In divine grace, there is a responsibility to be servants and ministers in our environment in which God has placed us. I remember some time ago, I had a chat with some folks and they were saying to me, oh, but Nathan, my my faith is a private faith. Look, I'm a pretty mild-mannered fellow as you can tell. And that made my blood boil. Where in Scripture does it say that your faith should be private? As a disciple and a follower of Christ, it is our role, it is our duty, through God's grace to proclaim him. And you say, oh, I don't have the gift of evangelism. doesn't matter. Proclaim him. Because his spirit will give you the power to do so. Go on, put yourself out on a limb this week. You all have conversations. We all have these conversations. And sometimes we just shy into the corner, don't we? Sometimes we just say, oh, What happens if they don't like me? I've got news for you. They don't like you anyway. You're a follower of Christ. You think, oh, what happens if they won't have a cup of tea with me at morning tea time? So what? It's lousy coffee anyway. Folks, let's proclaim him in the power of the Spirit. This week, 
Think about who your circle of influence are. Think about those people that come in your lives. Pray for opportunity to display Christ. Let's not be silent in our witness. Let's be like Paul who, who captured the heart of what it meant to tell people about a mystery. The greatest mystery in the world. Through one man's sacrifice, all can be saved. That is the mystery revealed. I'd like to invite the song team up and we'll sing our last song.